0: Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Today we're speaking with Dr Victoria Brooks who is a senior lecturer in population health and production at the School of Animal and Veterinary Science at Charles Sturt Uni in Wagga Wagga. Vicki, thanks for joining us on Charles Sturt Stories today. Thank you. Great. Well, so Vicky, population health and production, what does that mean? Can you tell me a little bit about your career and how you ended up in your role here?
1: Well, my career has been quite diverse in, in terms of veterinary science, actually. And so, even but even when I was four years old, I knew I wanted to be a vet. And all the way through school, I really focused on being a, a general practitioner, a James Herriot style of vet. And uh, when I qualified, I worked in general practice in the UK in Cumbria, actually, for, for three or four years. And that was actually the, the um, epicenter of the foot and mouth disease outbreak in the UK. So oh. I was quite involved in, in dealing with that at the time. Wow. Um But even even going through school, I, I, I suppose I had the early signs of being an epidemiologist and I didn't notice myself at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but I was very, very interested in the outbreak of bovine spongiform encephalopathy in the cows in the UK at the time, BSE was it's, mm-hmm. its known. Yeah, uh, and I used to keep all the newspaper articles on that and, uh, and read them thoroughly. Uh, there, wasn't, there, wasn't the, there wasn't the internet at the time, so you couldn't, you couldn't look up, uh, you know, lots of different information on there. So I really relied on what turned up in newspapers and, and magazines, mm. and uh, and I, I carried on being interested in it at vet school as well. And so yeah, initially I was in, in general practice in, in, in Cumbria, and then I came to Australia for uh, a year. A uh, lots of UK vets do that. Australian vets come over to the UK for a year. And locum in lots of different places. And I really, really liked Australia and decided that I would love to come back and live here. Then I went back to the UK and worked on the foot and mouth disease outbreak over that next year. And I also did some travel to China. And then. Um, came to live in Australia full time and I uh, started off working in the Hunter Valley mm-hmm. and then did a variety of different types of practice there. I also have a particular interest in, in exotic animals, particularly birds actually. So I carried on working in that, also in general practice, particularly with cattle and also in equine practice because uh, Hunter Valley is a, is a thoroughbred area of Australia, the thoroughbred breeding area. So I did some work there and it wasn't until around about the, well, 2000 and, Ten, I suppose that I realized that actually I was really interested in epidemiology, so I did some extra uh, qualifications, some study there and then I decided to do a PhD uh, looking at exotic diseases that could infect pigs in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, so diseases that we don't have here and then after that I carried on doing research into uh, maybe, mainly rabies up north in Australia looking at how we can be prepared in that region and also in Papua New Guinea, they don't have that there yet and then working in Southeast Asia um, in, in doing some rabies research in that area as well and then eventually that led to a, a position as a senior lecturer at, at Charles Sturt, so teaching in population health so focusing a lot on cattle in, in, in my teaching and then in research focusing on infectious disease particularly emerging infectious diseases. Vicky, you have been everywhere. Goodness, Australia, China, <laughs> Southeast
0: Asia, Cumbria, all over. So, so talk me through. Is epidemiology the study of infectious disease, or is it the study of viruses and then zoonoses? What does that mean? Because I know that you've got an interest in both.
1: Yeah. So how does that all fit together? Yeah. Well, Epidemiology in itself is, is looking at how diseases spread in populations and w- what the distributions are of their risk factors and, and, and the diseases themselves. So mm. who they occur in, where they occur, and the, the, the factors that cause them to occur at the times and their regions and then the people uh, or the animals that are affected. So that that's epidemiology. And then there's all sorts of different branches of epidemiology. Or you could say actually epidemiolo- epidemiology is more of a hub science in that, we we use lots of methods from other disciplines. So we we borrow methods like risk assessment and disease modelling. You've heard a lot about disease modelling on the on the yes. news recently. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there's there's epidemiologists with with um, special interest in particular methods, and also special interest in different areas of disease. So I'm particularly interested in infectious diseases, particularly emerging infectious diseases and zoonoses. So, zoonoses are diseases that pass from animals to humans. Ah, so it's that specific type of disease. So, Ah, yeah. oh,
0: all right. Well, how interesting. So, you mentioned that you've investigated uh, rabies outbreaks and you mentioned that you started career out in the Hunter Valley where there was lots of horses and so I know that you've been involved with equine influenza when that broke out. but I mean, can you give us a view of what's different about, I guess, coronavirus or coronaviruses? I know that the SARS virus is is a type of coronavirus. What's the difference between that and a rabies outbreak? Which, can you give us a
1: sense of which is more dangerous, I suppose? Okay. There's lots of different ways to measure how a disease is dangerous. So I think one for individuals, they would say, okay, disease is really dangerous if it's going to kill me. And in the case of rabies, if you catch rabies and you don't know, once you start showing clinical signs, you're highly unlikely to survive. Oh, so that makes that very, very dangerous in that respect. Something like COVID-19, it's, um mostly in a lot of people it's asymptomatic mm-hmm. and in, and in a, and again a, a load more people it has very mild symptoms so from an individual's point of view if you catch, catch coronavirus if you're not in a high-risk group then it's likely that it's not going to have any serious sequelae however the severity in 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 this particular instance for corona for this covid 19 is it spreads to an awful lot of people so even though from an individual's perspective, it it might not be very serious. When you look at it from a population health perspective, there's a lot of people who've who've died of it now around the world, and its ability to overwhelm health systems because so many people become infected so quickly uh, is also uh, extremely serious.
0: It's almost like the ripple effect of people getting sick from coronavirus creates more danger, I'm thinking as you're talking, because you think, oh, well, if most people are asymptomatic and, you know, why are we having such an extreme response to this particular virus? But as you say, it spreads quickly to so many people and then our our health institutions become overwhelmed and that will then affect people who are sick with other things or need other help, I suppose. So there's different types of danger from it. True, yeah. Yeah. With uh, coronavirus, do you think
1: we have a good idea where it it developed from? We do in a broad sense. Uh, We know that these types of viruses, we know that in fact, actually, most most new infections in humans, nearly all of them arise from an animal source. Mm. So it's not unexpected that coronavirus is uh, originally a, a, a type of virus that's found in bats, and it's likely that it's either come directly from bats or has had an intermediate species. But we don't know what that is at this stage. We don't know exactly how it's done that, but but we can say that that's you know the, in in the broader sense that's how it's happened. Mm. Do do
0: you think that? I mean, do they get transmitted? Well, I guess you just said we don't know. So it could be a bite, it could be fluid, it could be an ingestion of an animal. We just don't know how it's transmitted to humans at this stage.
1: Yes, that's right. Specifically, we don't. And it's important to understand that in the long term. Um, But in the short term, now it's the transmission between humans that's obviously the, the major concern and understanding as much as we can about that. that we know what situations are less or more safe to develop strategies as we're trying to ease the lockdown so that we can still keep this as everybody's calling it the curve flatten and make sure that the health systems aren't overwhelmed. And with community
0: transmission, so as you just mentioned as lockdown tends to in Australia start to ease, what should we look out for? There's been you know chatter about a second wave of infections. Is that what does that mean? Is it when you know asymptomatic people unexpectedly infect people who then become very sick, or what does that part of it look like?
1: Yeah, the second wave of transmission is something that you see in infectious diseases when when most of the population don't yet have immunity. So there's been a lot of chatter about herd immunity, mm. um, and in the case of a, of a virus like COVID-19, on average, one person who gets COVID-19 has chance of passing it on to two or three other people on average. Mm. Okay, They might meet many, many more people but on average that's what's happening and that's what people are meaning when they're talking about the reproductive number. Mm. That means that within a month you can have un- uncontrolled transmission. Mm. So imagine one person passes on to another two or three people and those two or three people keep passing on to another two or three people and nobody notices and the incubation period is quite short so people can do that sort of after about four days, four or five days of being infected and that's very different to flu which on average infects one, maybe two more people on average. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's one of the big differences so people say, are we overreacting? Mm. But this COVID-19, the virus that causes that is much more infectious basically and so the outbreak can, can escalate really, really quickly. So, if you do the math uh, and assume that both uh, influenza and COVID-19 have the same incubation period, in the case of influenza, it might be a little bit different. Um, but assume they have both the same and you've got one person passing to one or maybe two flu and one person passing to two, but quite likely three with, with coronavirus. Within a month, you might have 14, 15 flu infections or about 50,000 coronavirus infections. That's a difference in the exponential growth between the two, so it's, yeah. Isn't that, that mind-blowing? Is, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> when, when you do the math of that, it, it suddenly becomes quite obvious that uh, the, the, the speed at which these outbreaks can grow for coronavirus is absolutely massive. Mm. And that's why people are, are very concerned about the second wave of infection because if we don't have a good idea of who's infected where, it doesn't take very long before we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of infections. And then the, the logistics and the resources required to trace all those people is really, really difficult. And so you can see how the hospital systems and the health Uh, resources really quickly become overwhelmed.
0: So how do we
1: prevent that?
0: I mean, I know that there's a government app that we should all download so that the tracing can be done. It can get out of control so quickly when it's that infectious. So easing lockdown, from a population point of view, how do we try and prevent our health systems being overwhelmed with so many sick people?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, so the lockdown restrictions are being eased very, very gradually because of this possibility. And so, yes, we do have to be careful. And I think once people feel that the restrictions are, are lifting, it's still really important that they're aware that even though those restrictions might not be there, so you might feel more able to to, to go out, go shopping, go to the beach, whatever. In those places, you still need to be very careful of your personal um, strategies to make sure you don't become infected or if you are infected to not pass on that infection to other people. This is a possibility that you, you can be infected without realizing it for a day or two so yeah it's important to make sure that you're socially distancing if there's hand hygiene vet, uh, there that you use them um, and so on.
0: Now, I'm a layperson who has a bit of a (laughs) dire view of the future, maybe because of the bushfires, maybe because of this pandemic, Vicky, I don't know. But when I think about virus mutations, that has been mentioned here and there. Not Not as often, I don't think, as the second wave of infections and that sort of thing, and I think that's rightly so. When I think about SARS or avian flu and then there was MERS, I think, well, I guess then they were more deadly perhaps, but not as infectious. And then we have COVID, which is fairly, fairly deadly, but very infectious. Probably not yeah. as deadly as the others. At what point is a virus going to mutate that is very infectious and exceptionally deadly? Do you think?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Who knows? I know th- this is this is a, one of the major concerns. So when virologists are are um, researching these sorts of things, and epidemiologists are in, uh, are also interested in this, that's the, the big pandemic concern: is the highly infectious virus that's also also has a you know, high mortality. You know, could kill mm. a lot of people. We don't know. So the, the most important thing is making sure that we're prepared for these events. I think governments around the world are realising what that means now. And also that we, we try and prevent these sorts of things happening as well. So mm. these situations where we know that we, we put wildlife ecosystems under stress, urbanisation encroaching on wildlife areas, climate change, so you get changes in habitat, basically putting animals, livestock and humans in the same space under stress uh, which usually means large populations, trying to avoid all of those sorts of scenarios so that we reduce the opportunity for these viruses. If they do mutate, mm. we don't provide them with the opportunity to then replicate and start to be able to be transmitted in a new host.
0: Vicky, has the whole horse bolted on that, do you think? The you know, scaling back of our impact on, on climate and the level of industrialisation That we have, that we rely on, that the way we live in such close quarters. (laughs) Oh,
1: that's a big question.
0: (laughs) Is it too late? (laughs) I I hope not. I hope not too I feel I do uh, as you're speaking uh, I love hearing and talking to our scientists at Charles Sturt talk about these things because you have such a clear understanding of what we do need to do I guess the next step is ensuring that there's the political will and and people on an individual level that are willing to change the way we live but I also feel in some ways that Australia has been really successful in terms of managing the virus uh, you know in ter- and that's not not any kind of disrespect to the people who've lost beloved family members but uh, population-wise we've done very well. It makes me wonder if we will then become very comfortable again. Oh well we sorted it out once if another virus comes along we'll be right. So that does play on my mind at times and I just wonder if there there just needs to be a little bit more focus I think on the different aspects of climate change and our impact on the environment around us. I think there's just no way around that nowadays.
1: Yeah I, I agree and I, I think uh, we already are hearing in the in the news about how people are questioning whether there's been a big overreaction. Obviously um, I don't think there has but you know those sorts of debates will, will go on and I think it's really important to try and keep it in the forefront of people's minds that this is all part of looking after the environment in which we live, and there's a much bigger picture even than a, a global pandemic like this uh, it's looking looking after our our planet and you know how we do that and how we move into the future sustainably is is obviously very very important so yeah I, I myself it, you know, I, I, I can only it's, it's not an area of research of mine, so I can only speak from what i personally believe in mm. and what I, what I see around me. But yeah, I'm hoping that uh, this will be a bit of a wake-up call and mm. that people will take these issues hopefully a bit more seriously.
0: Mm, I hope so too. I hope that gives us an opportunity to invest in some of the science and activities that we need to alter the way that we live. And in my mind, there's an opportunity there for for governments and how we rebuild economically and provide jobs for people. Why not invest in the things that are good for the planet? Now Vicky, on a lighter note, do you see germs everywhere? Do you see opportunities (laughs) for infection literally everywhere?
1: try and be quite pragmatic about these things. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise you wouldn't leave the house would you? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh goodness I tell you I've never washed my hands so often I think it's a good habit to get into.
1: Yeah actually I have to say not from being an epidemiologist but having done clinical practice it makes a big difference to understanding how um, in to understanding infection control and being a little bit more aware of your surroundings so so earlier on in the outbreak where we didn't know so much about which areas are mostly infected and still now I I can go around imagining myself scrubbed up for an operation and then I don't touch anything and I don't touch my face but that's because of my background training.
0: Well Vicky thank you so much for speaking with us today
1: I've learned so much from you. It was a pleasure thank you.
0: Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.